You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Picture this. It's your lunch break. You're eating at the staff cafeteria when you feel hands in your hair. Wow, your hair. Is it real or a wig? It's 5pm and you've just wrapped up your last call. You know, I couldn't help over here. But your English, it's excellent. You're waiting at the lifts when the team leader in the next department joins you. It's really great, he says. Confused, you ask, sorry? It's great, he repeats. It's great that Jim has started the diversity hire program. He's been talking about it for some time now. Um, I applied on SEEK just like everyone else. Uh, yeah, um, look, I didn't mean anything by it. It's only the first day at your new job, but this isn't the first time your hair has been prodded, your English dissected, or your ability questioned. It happened at your old workplace, and the place before that, and the one before that. Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Yan Shirwa. This week on Woman on the Line, senior academic Kathomi Gatwari looks at what it's like to be a black African professional in Australia. Her study, Racial Microaggressions at Work, Reflections from Black African Professionals in Australia, is the focus of our interview. Stick around because later in the show, we'll hear a breathtaking speech by Senator Lydia Thorpe. But first up, let's chat to Kathomi Gatwari. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Kathomi. Thank you very much for having me. Before we look at the report, which is fantastic, Mm -hmm. and I suggest everyone go out and read it, um, you're an award-winning researcher. You're also a senior academic, among many other things. And it's safe to say you're a highly skilled professional. What's it like being a black professional in academic spaces that, as you know, is very elite? I think for me what has been very clear, I think, over the last several years is um, the sense of being the only one, you know, um, in some of those spaces. So you would be the only black woman in a department or in a school. Um, and it's, it's, it might be a supportive environment, but I... But I think there's also that sense of loneliness, you know, not looking around and seeing people who look like you, who talk like you. And um, there's that sense of professional aloneness when you can't see other people who look like you. Definitely, that is the thought that creeps um, up on me many times. And I think that sense of being the only one means that your experiences are actually quite isolated in the workplace because they're not the norm, they're not the standard. And so they're things of, uh, that you experience that are just totally out of, uh, how would I say this? They're not 
uh, they don't conform to the style or patterns that the other people work with because you are kind of like, you know, out of place, if that makes sense. Yeah, (laughs) it does. And your story sounds like, because I've read the report, it definitely reflects all the anecdotes that people have shared with you and especially Mm -hmm. the bit about feeling of alienation and Mm. I guess when you're the only one who understands what's happening it's and you don't have anyone else to echo or kind of go, hey, sis, I see what just happened, you sort of Mm. feel like you're imagining it, that it's in your head and it's kind of like a form of gaslighting in a way. Absolutely. And and I think the processes of racialization in the workplace, they are really so subtle, you know, and so hidden that they will make you think you're kind of going crazy. You know, you see something, it immediately thinks in your body that that was not right, but you don't have anybody else to go, hey, did you just see that, hear that, you know, notice that? You don't have anybody to bounce off those ideas with. And so the heaviness and the racial battle fatigue that I, I, that I talk about in this research, that fatigue also comes from the decoding process, which you have to decode these hidden and subtle racial messages that are in everyday interactions in the workplace. And sometimes that is where the, the fatigue comes from. I feel like it's also exacerbated when you don't have the language to articulate what's happening. You sort of Mm -hmm. have this innate feeling that something isn't quite right, but you don't Mm -hmm. have sometimes the language to be like, okay, so this is microaggression and this Mm. is, uh, this uh, ideology is whiteness. Like, because not all of us have that language, you know, unless we're Mm. in a field where these are the kind of language, language that we use in our daily life. Um, I guess now's the perfect time to talk about your report. Can you give us a synopsis of that report? Yeah, sure. So I interviewed, um, basically, uh, I'm very involved in the African community. And in most of my formal or informal um, interactions with a lot of black Africans in Australia, this topic would always come up, the topic of, you know, uh, being racialized in the workplace, the idea that, you know, the workplaces are race neutral or race free or free of racism, you know. So I heard these stories over and over again in these informal settings that I thought, well, we're going to, you know, sorry, excuse me, build a study around that and see what people actually say. So I interviewed 27 black African professionals in South Australia where this study was located. And so they were very highly educated professionals ranging from doctors, academics, engineers, social workers, nurses, you know, uh, people in finance um, uh, and many other, you know, professionals talking about their experiences. So I used you know, critical race perspectives to really make um, visible the invisibility of microaggressions in the workplace and really to use the stories that were shared with me to demonstrate how this invisibility of microaggressions in the workplace produces um, really significant mental and psychological distress 
for people who are minoritized in the workplace. So hmm. there are lots of stories to kind of contextualize how big and wide and um, really um, harmful the burden of uh, microaggressions is in the workplace. Hmm. Yeah. And can you hmm. tell us what that is? What does racial microaggression look like? Because I personally know what microaggressions are, but when you add the racial, what does that look like? Hmm. So racial microaggressions are subtle racial discriminatory behaviours and sometimes they're so subtle that they make you question your mind as to whether it is really true or whether you're just imagining it. So they are brief, they are daily, um, they are enacted through daily verbal behaviour and environmental indignities that are meant to... Um, exemplify uh, someone's racial difference. And sometimes they are enacted through negative racial slights or put-downs or patterns of disrespect that uh, communicate that racial difference um, in the workplace particularly. And I just wanted to emphasize that with microaggressions, this is why the micro is in the aggressions because they are so small and so minute that often they're easy to ignore and hard to name, yes. Right, and that's an excellent definition. And um, there's one person in your study that, for me at least, stuck out to me, and that is Vera, who is a senior nurse. Can you um, Mm -hmm. share her story and give examples of the microaggressions that she faced in the workplace? Yes, so the microaggressions that Vera was experiencing I would categorize that as the the subtle acts of exclusion that I just mentioned. And she told me the story of how um, this colleague left the workplace that they used to work together. And this colleague went to another organization and that stayed in touch with quite a number of colleagues that remained in her organization. And this other colleague then... um, had a baby shower that she was organizing and someone in the current workplace was passing a card for everybody to sign for this person and they passed the card around everybody except to her. So um, she didn't get an opportunity to sign the card. She didn't get an opportunity to be involved in any of the discussions around congratulating this former colleague they just excluded her and didn't give her an opportunity to participate in that office, you know, um, togetherness. Mm. And it might sound so subtle that it's a card just being passed around and it doesn't necessarily mean that the colleague who left was particularly close to her, but it was just the act of not being included in that social act that really produces that experience of exclusion. But the micro in this, um, the micro aspect in this story is that it was wasn't that anybody said anything to her. It was the microaggression. On community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. So far, we've been chatting with senior academic and researcher Kathomi Gatwari about racial microaggressions. Now that we understand what racial microaggression is, let's dig a bit deeper. 
In this next half of the interview, Kathomi looks at accent discrimination and why not all accents are judged equally. And if you're listening to us and thinking, why don't these professionals complain if they're so upset? Stick around because Kathomi answers that too. As you were talking and I was listening, I was thinking about what is the underlying message or the underlying belief that creates racial microaggressions? Is it about white dominance? Well, I think I think it's about the culture that experiences dominance, you know? So microaggressions can be enacted in different ways. There can be racial microaggressions, gender, you know, microaggressions, um, you know, think about any culture that experiences dominance and microaggressions really are produced as a process of blind spotting, which is you've never had to think about that thing and therefore you're not aware about your acts of commission and your acts of omission when you're speaking, when you're joking, when you're interacting with that person. So um, when whiteness is the norm, you assume that every standard and every experience of living uses whiteness as the default, as the standard, you know. And therefore, every experience, if that is your default, is going to be minoritized or added, you know. And it is, you know, so for example, uh, if whiteness is the norm and there's a way in which in which whiteness valorizes professionals, so, for example, having straight hair or something like that. So if you have a black professional who doesn't have straight hair, they have dreadlocks or they have, you know, Afro hair, then you can see how, you know, that look itself might be seen as unprofessional because whiteness and the way it presents itself in a professional setting, you know, um, is used to inferiorize other experiences of being a professional, whether that is, you know, the hair or whether that is the accent or whether it's just the experience of migration, is thinking about what is the standard that is used to measure every other experience in the work, in the workplace. And often in Australia, whiteness is pretty much seen as the standard way of, um, you know, thinking about professional etiquette and things mm. like that. And when I think yeah. about... I guess the older generation, right? Let's take my mother, for example. She's always told Mm -hmm. me, you know, don't try to be too visible, you know, don't try to like rock the boat. It's something that she's also internalized. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that we become also, I guess, arbiters of what is considered professional. I'd like to... Absolutely. I'd like to... um, put myself in the shoe of someone else who's never experienced this, right? So let's say we have a listener who's, you know, hearing our conversation and thinking, look, they're making too much of a big deal. I don't get it. Like sticks and stones. And if they have a problem, why don't they speak out? Why do you think black professionals would be reluctant to speak to their boss about the issues that they're facing? So imagine going to speak to a boss who also minimizes your experience because they don't see it as a problem, right? You know, so if you have a boss who is not uh, responsive to how microaggressions can be harmful, if they minimize 
that experience or invalidate that experience, then it's not very comfortable to feel racially safe to be able to say this is harmful to me. But more so, it is about the way black professionals are viewed when they complain in the workplace. And I think you mentioned it just before. As soon as you raise any concerns about microaggressions or racism or exclusion in the workplace, you immediately become the aggressor, you know, and the perpetrator is victimized in that process. You know, there's a lot of racial gaslighting. There's a lot of, you know, um, uh, people feeling attacked simply because a black professional has said, you know, I didn't feel safe in this interaction. And I think a lot of uh, black professionals just choose their peace of mind, you know, because just the, the hassle of having to prove that something harmful was done to you is even more harmful just than the event and the experience itself. So a lot of them just never speak about it because they're not believed and because they are told it's not much of a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. So I was going to say, also, if you were to judge, I'm putting myself in the boss's shoe, if you were to ju- judge that one comment in isolation, it doesn't sound bad. But when you think about the fact that this happens all the time and not just in one workplace, you're coming in with a lifetime of microaggressions. And that's something that can't be articulated to a boss. Absolutely. And I think that's a really, really good point of the fact that when a black person finally decides to speak about an experience of racism or experience of racial microaggression, you can bet this is, you know, a hundred times that they've probably heard this or experienced this and they're coming to their wit's end about it. But when you view those experiences, like you're saying, in isolation, they're very hard to just see what's the big deal about it, you know? What's what's harmful about someone commenting about your hair and your accent and, you know, not being able to sign one card in, the, in, in a workplace? It doesn't seem that harmful. But if you think about this every day, you are experiencing an event that reminds you you're less than, you're different, you don't belong. You know, it combines and it compounds into an experience where people start to feel really psychologically distressed by by these experiences. Yeah. It is really frustrating because as I was reading your report, I felt triggered. Mm. I was like, yes, this has happened, not just to me, but to people that I know and care about mm. and love. And um, yeah, so for me, this report hits close to home. Um, one yeah. other thing that I'd love for you to touch on that I don't think gets enough coverage is accent discrimination. So, A, what does that look like? And also, are accents judged equally? So, microaggressions are also enacted on accents, right? And all accents are not equal, <laughs> just like all races are not equal because of the hierarchies that you know, white supremacy has created around some of these um, ideologies. And so microaggressions are, are enacted on accent, and in particular, African accents are considered quite undesirable in the workplace. And this is what most of my participants were telling me, that lacking the ability to 
speak the Australian colloquial English disadvantages them because stereotypes of the unknowing, backward um, African are summoned through speech, you know. So we know that accent discrimination is actually a well-documented phenomenon that closes employment doors, especially for immigrants of color who English is not a first language. I mean, think about it. Think about the accents that are actually valorized and celebrated. When we think about the French accent, what, what ideas come into your mind? You know, when you think about the Spanish accent. Last week, I went to the Invasion Day rally organized by Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, also known as War Collective, the event gathered tens of thousands of mourners and shut down Melbourne City. To keep us safe, War set up a COVID plan and had marshals who made sure people were following safety guidelines. It was a well-organised event. One of the people who spoke at the rally was Senator Lydia Thorpe and we're so proud now to bring you her powerful address. First, I'll pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people and thank them for sharing their country with us. I thank them for their resistance for almost 250 years of oppression, genocide, dispossession, and absolute denial of their existence denial of their rights, the destruction of their country, the destruction of their water, and they still call for peace and unity. Today, today is Invasion Day. The 26th of January, whatever month, whatever time, a war was declared on the first people of this land. That war has not ended. That war has been going on for almost 250 years. Yes, we still have guns pointed to our heads. We still have a boot on our necks. Our babies are still being stolen. Our babies are still being incarcerated and thrown in prisons. Ten-year-old babies are being locked up in this country. Is that something to celebrate? Well, why are people having barbecues and beers and shrimps on their barbie and celebrating the death and destruction of this people's first people, the oldest continuing living culture in the world. 
We can't rely on the so-called leadership in this country. I see that racism when I'm in that place. It's real. It's like America. There is a far-right rot in this country's parliament. They are stoking the fire of the far-right racism in this country. That is the other pandemic, the slimy, secret pandemic of racism in this country that we need to eradicate because it's killing us. I still have my granddaughters and my daughter fighting for their rights. When is this going to end? It's almost been 250 years. We're sick of protesting. We are sick. We need this day as our day of mourning because that's what's going to bring this country together is truth. will bring this country together and not one government yet has been able to do that. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lydia Thorpe. You've given us a lot to think about and sit with. We also want to note the incredible efforts of warriors of the Aboriginal resistance. They did an excellent job of keeping us safe and healthy. Each year, the number gets bigger and the call to abolish Australia Day gets stronger. We also want to thank Thermi Gatwari for coming on the show. You can read her study, Racial Microaggressions at Work, Reflections from Black African Professionals in Australia, on the British Journal of Social Work. She's also written an article that summarises her study in the conversation. Woman on the Line is one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender diverse broadcasters from 3CI in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email at womanontheline at gmail.com. Woman on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 
3cr.org.au/womanonthelinen. Our theme music is by Replica Vira. My name is Ian Shirwa, and we hope you have an amazing week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.